This is the ACR 22 Daily Podcast Review featuring the Room Now faculty as they present to you their favorite abstracts and presentations from the meeting. Enjoy. Welcome to the Best of PSA at ACR 2022 for Sunday today. Uh, November 13th, 2022. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate. I am here to represent team um, PSA. I'm going to tell you who those people are because they are important and they have been giving you all of the information for roomnow.com for team PSA. So I want to highlight their work. It's Drs. Orly Naj, Trish Harkins, Robert Chow, and Olga Petrina. I thank them for their dedication and um, Check out their videos, of course, for highlighting other great works on psoriatic disease throughout ACR 2022 on our website. Without further ado, here are tonight's top two in PSA. Our first abstract tonight is by Dr. Gladman et al. It's from the Foremost Study. This is abstract 1018. The objective of this particular study was to look at psoriatic arthritis disease phenotypes including location, disease distribution, kind of other manifestations of, of the disease. The study looked at over 220 patients with less than one year of disease activity at the time of enrollment. Within the overall group, nearly 60% of these patients had one, or pardon me, more than one tender and swollen joint. Of those patients who only had one joint involved, approximately 40% of the aforementioned patients the majority had small joint involvement, and as you would think, predominantly PIP joints. What they ultimately found is that despite the few number of joints involved in this particular early oligoarticular PSA patient population, those patients experienced high disease burden and impaired quality of life in terms of their HACDI scores, their patient global scores, and their PSAD scores. So despite the few numbers of swollen and tender joints involved, so why we think this is interesting and why you should know about it is that this study actually highlights the patient experience as it potentially diverges from the physician clinical assessment. And so it highlights our need for better understanding and really helping us to treat psoriatic disease as it, as it is for our patients. Our next abstract is 1159. The aim of this particular study was to understand uveitis and psoriatic arthritis. This was a single center in Spain. It's with Dr. Vincenti Del Mas et al. And the team studied over 400 psoriatic arthritis patients, and they discovered nearly 5% developed uveitis. Each of these cases, that 5%, they were acute. Over 80% of those patients were anterior and unilateral, and 50% of the patients had recurrence. The majority of the patients were found to be HLA-B27, who had uveitis, they had a history or active sacroiliitis and had elevated BASB and PSAD scores at the time of uveitis. The incidence of uveitis before versus after biologic treatment was decreased in the TNF inhibitor group, with the exception of those patients treated with a Tanercept or patients who were treated with secukinumab, in which both instances were increased. So this begs the question, is the incidence really around 5% or are we potentially treating preclinical uveitis risk with certain TNF inhibitors? As always, we have more questions than answers, but these are your clinical considerations from our psoriatic arthritis team. 
As always, follow me on Twitter at up to Tate, and I'm looking forward to tomorrow when we can meet again from Philly for roomnow.com from ACR 2022. Hi, my name is Akhil Sood, reporting from now at ACR 22. Today I'd like to discuss Aptrac 1609, which looks at the impact of comorbidities in patients with ankylosing spondylitis in its association with functional status and disease activity. Comorbidities are more common in patients with inflammatory arthritis, including ankylosing spondylitis. It is suspected that the presence and combination of certain comorbid conditions can influence patient outcomes. And Aptrac 1609 specifically looks at this area. Using the SOAS registry, they identified a cohort of patients with ankylosing spondylitis. Using clustering methods, they identified clusters of patients with AS defined by the presence of certain comorbid conditions. And in this study, they identified five unique clusters defined by these conditions, including depression, hypertension, and uveitis. And the cluster defined by the presence of depression was found to have higher disease activity and worse functional status compared to the group with no comorbidities. And these findings are really important. They come in light of their recent findings, recommendations from ASAS ULAR, which states that the absence of response to treatment should prompt reevaluation of the diagnosis and consideration of the presence of comorbidities. So next time you have a patient with AS with difficult to control activity, it's important to consider optimization of the comorbidities as well as controlling the underlying inflammation. Hi, David Liu here for Room Now from the Philly Convention Center, ACR 22. Some more RA abstracts. In particular, I want to tell you about some data from the VA Rheumatoid Arthritis Registry, abstract 0889, and it specifically relates to the interaction between adipokines and osteoporotic fractures. Adipokines, what are they? Well, they're hormones that relate to adipose tissue, to fat, and we've had a great appreciation over the last 10, 15 years about the importance of adipokines. A lot of obesity-related um, uh, damage and, and harm occurs because of adipokines, and we know in particular that they interact a lot with rheumatoid arthritis. We also know they interact with bone health, and that's what we saw here. So looking at this registry of rheumatoid arthritis patients, we saw a very clear correlation in terms of adipokine presence and osteoporotic fractures. And so um, they looked at two different adipokines, um, and if you had one, uh, you had increased, uh, increased risk of, of uh, um, osteoporotic fractures versus if you had none. If you had two, you had an even greater risk as well. So I think this is really tells us a lot about um, osteoporosis management in our rheumatoid arthritis patients. And I think we don't often necessarily, we think about the, the pharmacology of it, we think about what drugs to give them, what drugs we shouldn't be giving them, but we really need to be thinking as well about the non-pharmacological management and really trying to think about how we manage fat, body fat, body composition in the context of managing the osteoporotic risk for our rheumatoid arthritis patients. For plenty more on RA and everything else at this conference, roomnow.com. David Liu here for Room Now from ACR 22. I'm all for challenging ideas that get taught. 
And I'd really like to go back to two things related to temporal arteries and giant cell arteritis. So the first thing stems from some data from Carlo Salvarini's group about physical examination of temporal arteries. I think often people uh, aren't sure what they're looking for, especially generalists, but sometimes us. We're not sure what we're looking for when we examine temporal arteries. What should we be looking for? Should we be looking at tenderness, thickening, loss of lo reduced or loss of pulse? Well, what um, Carlos Alvarini's group has presented at this meeting is data looking at the performance of all three of these different things compared to halo on ultrasound as well in terms of predicting a positive temporal artery biopsy. The long and the short of it is tenderness of the temporal artery is basically as good as tossing a coin. Not much better than that. Whereas losing pulse, reduced pulse, or thickening of the temporal artery, that rope-like temporal artery, those things actually give value, nearly as much value as the ultrasound halo sign. So I think that gives us enormous uh, insight into what we should be looking for. Another quick thing that often doesn't get challenged is the idea that with a full temporal artery, um, if you get a, ne a negative biopsy, it's because we just haven't taken enough slices, and that we haven't got the we've got a skip lesion, that we've hit a skip lesion and we've got between the different actual active parts of the temporal artery and if we just took more slices that would um, find the actual lesion. Well I'm not sure if that's the case after seeing this work from Oregon, really lovely work looking at RNA-seq of temporal arteries, looking at places where the biopsy is positive, looking at skip lesions, so between the different positive biopsy sites and then also looking at biopsy negative GCA as well and comparing the RNA-seq between those three. Fascinating to see that the skip lesions and the um, te positive temporal artery biopsies are very similar on RNA-seq, but the biopsy negative GCA is something very different. And I think that speaks to the idea that maybe we're looking at multiple different diseases under the one umbrella. For plenty more about vasculitis, Everything at ACR22 as well. Head on down to roomnow.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2022. Topics about hydroxychloroquine always show up in these meetings because it is an important drug for lupus and patients are maintained in it for long periods. Today, I'm going to talk about two abstracts that address issues on therapeutic thresholds and cumulative doses that I found interesting. The first one is abstract 0982 by the group of Dr. Hakes, which was a prospective cohort study of 286 lupus patients followed for a minimum of 10 years. They looked into the average dose of hydroxychloroquine per year of disease duration, which was computed by dividing the cumulative dose of hydroxychloroquine from the time of diagnosis up to the last known follow-up over the lupus disease duration. And they used the SLIC ACR damage index or the SDI to assess disease damage and recorded incidents of major Adverse Cardiovascular Events, or MACE. And the, the results of this study showed a statistically significant negative correlation between hydroxychloroquine per year dose and the SDI. So patients with an SDI of zero 
had a higher mean hydroxychloroquine per year um, dose versus those with an SDI of more than one. And this was consistently seen at all time points of the study. Now, in addition, patients who had developed major adverse cardiovascular events had lower mean HCQ per year um, doses than those who did not have or did not develop major, ad major adverse cardiovascular events. So this means that patients on higher doses of hydroxychloroquine had lesser damage accrual and incidence of MACE. Now, the second abstract with number 0344 presented by Dr. Garge looked into two things, how factors such as renal function, dose, or social determinants can predict changes in hydroxychloroquine blood levels, and number two, clarify hydroxychloroquine thresholds that can predict adherence, efficacy, and, points at and patients at risk for toxicity. So patients on hydroxychloroquine for more than a month had blood levels measured using liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. Um, they used also <clears throat> sorry, re mixed regression models to assess how renal function, social determinants, and other factors would predict change in hydroxychloroquine. And um, they saw that, uh, well, just to, um, to mention, the, they mentioned that clinically significant change in hydroxychloroquine levels, as previously um, seen in other findings, was defined as a more than or equal to 8% change in mean hydroxychloroquine levels. So their findings show that the, um, for patients on CKD stage 2 or more, or through using the GFR, it was associated with a clinically significant increase in hydroxychloroquine levels. And in terms of the threshold levels, they found that hydroxychloroquine at a dose of more than 500 nanograms per ml detected adherence, a dose of hydroxychloroquine between 750 to 1,000 nanograms per ml um, was effective to prevent flares, and that supra-therapeutic levels such as that of more than 1,500 were seen in CKD patients. So these results reinforce one of the many beneficial effects of hydroxychloroquine and underscores how it remains to be a major therapeutic drug in lupus. We see in these two abstracts how this drug, if dosed appropriately, confers better outcomes for our patients. In my area, blood hydroxychloroquine levels are not routinely done because it is not readily available and costly. So will these findings change how we give hydroxychloroquine to our patients? Probably not yet, but most likely in the near future as evidence supporting these data continue to grow. Follow me on Twitter at Rumarampa and tune into Room Now for more videos and reports of the ACR Convergence 2022. Thank you. I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, reporting here for Room Now at ACR22. There have been lots of interesting papers looking at new therapies, and the area that we are really interested in is the use of uh, JAK inhibitors. These have come along and uh, has really uh, revolutionized some of the treatments, especially in areas such as 
axospondyloarthritis. One of the concerns that we have is about the incidence of um, major cardiovascular events or venous thromboembolism. And there was a study uh, presented here at ACR22, post 510, where the, uh, they looked at the use of uh, upadacitinib, which is a selective JAK1 inhibitor, uh, across indications in rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and also ankylosing spondylitis. And here they had over 6,000 patients who uh, were recruited into the uh, studies, uh, and this involved nine different studies. And they looked particularly into the aspect of major cardiovascular events, MACE, and also BTEs. When you look at the uh, population study, the 40 to 50% of these patients had two or more risk factors for cardiovascular events. And also more than a quarter of them were above the age of 65. This immediately would put them at risk of having cardiovascular events and also a possible venous thromboembolism. What was interesting in this study across uh, the nine studies when they pulled the data was the actual incidence of uh, MACE was low. Uh, there were none in the, uh, in the ankylosing spondylitis group and 41 in the rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis group. When they looked at these uh, patients who had MACE in the RA and PSA group, they were enriched for risk factors. So these were standard risk factors uh, such as hypertension uh, and diabetes that, that predisposed them to having these risks. The number of patients that uh, who were, did not have the risk was actually quite small uh, in the people who developed MACE on the treatment. So this is uh, an interesting study. It adds to our knowledge uh, of uh, how we would manage our patients and make, making sure that we assess and also treat their risk factors if they are on treatment with a JAK inhibitor. There was also a study uh, at uh, 0404, uh, which is a study looking at another JAK inhibitor, a pan-JAK inhibitor called tofacitinib. Uh, and here, this is a, an oral uh, JAK inhibitor, and they were looking at one of the aspects, uh, which is uh, antocytis. Uh, this paper really uh, showed that it's actually quite sometimes quite challenging to assess enthesitis, especially when patients also have tender and swollen joints. And the presence of tender and swollen joints may actually affect the outcome uh, when, when patients assess for the enthesitis. Nevertheless, this study showed that in patients who won the tofacitinib arm, there was improvement in the costochondral and also Achilles uh, enthesitis. Uh, taking into account the number of tendons swollen joints they had, and, and these patients did better compared to placebo. Another area that are, where JAK inhibitors are coming in in the rheumatic diseases are in the area of uh, recycling uh, TNF inhibitors. So we usually, in the past, would have used TNF inhibitors as first-line treatment, and the question is, do we then recycle with another TNF inhibitor, or do we switch mode of action? And uh, in poster 1588, they tried to answer these questions where patients had adalimumab as their first-line TNF, and then they would switch either to etanosap or to a JAK inhibitor. And in this study, it showed that there was a slight uh, improvement uh, in, in patients who were switched to JAK inhibitor in terms of some of their outcomes compared to switching to another uh, TNF inhibitor, namely etanosap. Nevertheless, there were some patients who did well on cycling to another TNF. So this study again shows us that there are certain 
patients who would benefit from a switch. And usually in clinical practice, this would be some of our patients who had primary failure with the first TNF or an adverse event, uh, whereas patients who would continue on the uh, TNF inhibitor would usually be people who had a secondary failure. This is, again, uh, an area where we would need to do further studies, especially with the advent of more therapies uh, such as JAK inhibitors in our clinical practice. I'm Anthony Chan, um, reporting here for Room Now at ACR22. My name is Yus Yusuf. I'm reporting for Room Now. I'm from Leeds, United Kingdom. Uh, today, I would like uh, to discuss uh, an abstract that I found uh, interesting and will be useful in our uh, clinical practice. This abstract is also uh, quite uh, thought-provoking. Uh, so the abstract uh, title, uh, the number is 1463. So this uh, abstract uh, was uh, presented at the press release uh, SLE as well. Um, so this is a study about... Um, trying to uh, evaluate the outcomes of patients who do not have uh, lupus nephritis but uh, were but you know but were found to have low grade proteinuria so what happened uh, you know to them whether you know do they progress into full blown lupus nephritis or did they get uh, better naturally or did they remain in you know, a stable on its own um so uh, the Several uh, uh, guidelines from uh, different countries uh, have different cutoff. Uh, I think in America, uh, the, the cutoff for a renal biopsy if uh, is if persistent uh, proteinuria of more than 0.5 gram, uh, and that probably indicates um, uh, you know biopsy. Whereas uh, other countries may may varies. Um, so uh, in this study, um, so they have. Um, so they look into 151 uh, patients uh, who had um, between uh, low grade proteinuria between 0 .2, uh, 0 0.2 and also 0 .0, uh, 0.5 gram. Uh, so they then um, look into the outcome uh, at uh, two years. Um, so what they found, uh, there were a, a, a split, uh, 50, 50%, 50%, um, you know, 50% of the patient, uh, they call it progressor. So uh, whether these patients then progress uh, to uh, urine protein urea of more than 0.5 gram, uh, whereas another 50%, um, you know, remain the same or um, become normalized. So uh, of uh, these, I don't know, 50% uh, who uh, progress into more than 0.5 gram, you know, per day protein urea. Um, so what uh, they found, there were, there were two types uh, of, um, uh, 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 phenotypes as well. Uh, one they called it uh, the fast progressor. So basically, what happened? Um, so these patients um, uh, progress really fast to 0.5 within two years. 
uh, and whereas uh, the other one is slow progress. Uh, um, so they progress to uh, a cutoff of 0.5 and above um, is uh, more than more than two years. And what they found that uh, they also did um, uh, kidney biopsy. So um, uh, 16 out of 20, so 80% of the people who uh, were fast progressor uh, will actually um, have a biopsy positive um, uh, lupus nephritis that were uh, that required some treatment. So overall, um, the 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 uh, the rate of positivity of uh, renal biopsy were eleven uh, percent. Um, so therefore, um, what this, does this uh, study tell us? So. Um, this study actually uh, reminded us uh, that uh, low-grade uh, uh, proteinuria may not necessarily be benign. So I think if we do see this in the clinic, for instance, if we do a urine dipstick and there were like a one or two plus, I think what we should do, we should quantify him. And if it's not normal and if it's, and, and, and it was taken uh, correctly, you know, for example, it was not taken during um, the patients uh, had a water infections or uh, during the period, I think what we should do, we should uh, aim to uh, monitor this protein, uh, uh, proteinuria uh, because uh, half of the patients potentially could progress uh, into um, uh, uh, spiraling uh, up uh, the level and also progression to the nephritis. So I think it's really uh, um, it's an important studies. Um, also, this uh, study also. Um, uh, also pro provide like a framework uh, that uh, maybe we also need a, a better biomarkers uh, in this you know, uh, group, which could be considered as at risk, uh, you know, to progress into kidney disease. Um, so I hope uh, you find uh, my uh, summary uh, useful. Um, and thank you for listening. Uh, and I hope uh, you continue to follow uh, our coverage uh, at Room Now uh, through YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, uh, and also Twitter. Thank you. So my name is Peter Nash from the School of Medicine at Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane and I'm reporting for Room Now at ACR Convergence 2022. This is an abstract that's looking at a very hot topic. How do you pick the patients with psoriasis who's going to go on to get psoriatic arthritis? Now we don't have a good biomarker to help us decide. This group from Germany, led by Georg Schett and his team, Ask the question, is there any imaging modality that'll help us pick the PSO patient who'll develop PSA? And they used a PET scanning approach and a particular PET CT with a gallium labeled selective inhibitor of fibroblast activator protein. Now this shows fibroblast activity because there's some evidence that Fibroblasts are activated in the synovium and in the entheses of patients with active psoriatic arthritis. Now, it was only a very small study, only 10 patients, but these people had no clinical signs of or symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. They were imaged. They imaged uh, 29 emphysial sites. They did the 66-68 tender swollen joint count. And what did they find? They found 86% had positive uptake in the synovoemphysial region, progressed to PSA over the period of follow-up.
and of the ones who, of the three patients who were negative, none of them progressed to PSA. The median PSA free survival was 207 days before they progressed. So this imaging technique is hypothesis generating, an expensive technique, they look using imaging, and when they're finding positive signs, a very high percentage of them do go on to develop PSA when examined by rheumatologists, and the ones who are negative, they didn't go on to develop PSA. So it's a watch this space, it's small numbers, but we really do need something to help us pick the patients at high risk of progressing so that we can maybe intervene early and prevent the progression. Thank you very much. Good evening, this is Leanne Gensler from UCSF in San Francisco reporting for Room Now for ACR Convergence 2022, day two of the conference. And I'm going to be reporting on spondyloarthritis and the best things I've seen today at the meeting. So my theme for today includes novel therapies and then diagnostic dilemmas and thinking about depression as a comorbidity in our patients. So in the treatment abstracts today, there were three novel mechanisms that were presented in different phases of study that are worth knowing about because these are going to eventually probably come to fruition as therapeutic options for our patients in with psoriatic arthritis. And so that included abstract 1597 presenting, presented by Frank Behrens on a novel mechanism of isokibep which is a fusion protein of an IL-17A inhibitor that uh, is quite small and, and is able to get to places that perhaps bigger molecules are not. And this was a 16-week randomized control, placebo-controlled phase two trial that was uh, positive in psoriatic arthritis. In addition, abstract 1598, which was an abstract presented by Philip Meese on a TIC2 inhibitor, Ducravacitinib, uh, in psoriatic arthritis presented 52-week results from a randomized phase two trial uh, with long, now longer-term efficacy and safety. And then finally, abstract 1599 is a abstract with bimikizumab presented by Joe Marola looking at patients with active psoriatic arthritis who had an inadequate response to TNF inhibition. And this was the 16-week efficacy and safety data from a phase three trial. So all uh, nice data, either phase two or phase three, some initial primary endpoints and some longer term efficacy and safety data, but looking forward seeing novel mechanisms that we will hopefully have to use for our patients with spondylarthritis and in particular psoriatic arthritis here. Moving on to the next abstract session today, there were a couple of abstracts that are worth mentioning. And that included abstract 1613 that was presented by Will Tillett who looked at diagnostic delay in patients with psoriatic arthritis and actually compared it to patients with rheumatoid arthritis and noted that in this early arthritis audit, patients with psoriatic arthritis had a longer delay to diagnosis, including a longer delay to referral to a rheumatologist. And then even when they were seen by a rheumatologist and diagnosed, 
they actually had a longer delay to treatment with a DMARD, despite being willing to, uh, you know, escalate treatment. And using a DAS-28, which is not the greatest measure for psoriatic arthritis because it really excludes the lower extremity, including the, the specifically the feet, but these patients had a higher DAS actually and a higher DAS on follow-up than the patients with rheumatoid arthritis and yet we're still not getting treated the same way. So really something for us to think about both in terms of diagnostic delay, but then also are we treating our patients with psoriatic arthritis differently? Uh, another study looked at comorbidities in ankylosing spondylitis. This is uh, abstract 1609 that was presented by Paras Acharya using the SOAS cohort. And so um, Dr. Karmacharya looked at comorbidities in ankylosing spondylitis and how they associated with both disease activity and function over time. And what he noted was after doing a cluster analysis, analysis, there was a particular cluster that really did not do well over time. And that was a cluster of depression patients. And most of these patients, 96% had depression and they had worse disease activity and function over time. So really an important comorbidity for us to understand and assess in our patients with axial spondylarthritis because it impacts the way that they may do over time. And we really need to think holistically about these patients. And the final abstract I wanted to mention was abstract 1614, which was presented by Dennis Pudabny. And this was using the PROOF study, which was a multi-country prospective observational study of patients with axial spondylarthritis. And he looked at patients with axial spondylarthritis and stratified by radiographic and non-radiographic disease to see if gender was impacted outcomes, and in particular, inactive disease in patients with axial spondylarthritis. And very interestingly found that in patients with radiographic disease or ankylosing spondylitis, there was no difference in the probability of reaching an inactive disease state whether you were a man or a woman. However, in the non-radiographic group, women did not achieve inactive disease to the same degree. And so I think the question that came out of this and a, a very rich discussion at the end of the abstract is why? And one of the big concerns is that women with non-radiographic disease may be misclassified as having axial spondylarthritis and perhaps actually do not have the right diagnosis. So we really need to think about this because there already exists genetic data to suggest that men with non-radiographic axial spondylarthritis look like axial, like ankylosing spondylitis, but women with non-radiographic uh, axial spondylarthritis do not have the same genetic risk. And that is a problem in that it brings up the question of whether we have a group of patients that may look like axial spondylarthritis, but actually do not have the disease. Um, and so something for us to think about moving forward as we both diagnose and treat patients with axial and peripheral spondylarthritis. This is Leanne Gensler presenting for Room Now, day two of the conference. So hello everyone, my name is Peter Nash. I'm a professor of rheumatology at Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today we're talking about uh, one of the abstracts presented at uh, ACR Philadelphia, ACR Convergence. This is a European study. It was done in Poland and Czechoslovakia and Switzerland. It's called the Go Back Study. And it's looking at AXPAR and 
terminating or tapering therapy. So it's a phase four study, but it's looking in particular at non-radiographic AXPAR and asking the question that if you withdraw a TNF, in this instance it's golimumab, can patients, how many will flare and can you recapture them if they do? So they took patients who had active non-radiographic axial spar and these patients had disease of less than five years duration. They were under 45 years of age and they gave them open label golimumab monthly for 10 months. That was the first period of the study and they found that the significant number had inactive disease after 10 months. In fact, of the 323 that started, 188 were inactive after 10 months of treatment. So then they asked the question in the second period, those patients who were inactive, if we either continued full treatment monthly, tapered them to every two months, or gave them placebo, what would happen to their disease? And of those that fled, can you recapture them? So that was the primary endpoint, the percentage who didn't flare once you tapered their therapy and compared that to continuing full monthly dosing. So what happened? <clears throat> the monthly dosing, 84% of patients did not flare versus second monthly dosing, 68% of patients didn't flare. And if you change them to placebo, 34% of patients didn't flare over the subsequent period of a couple of months follow-up. Now, of the ones who did flare, you could recapture 96% of them over a couple of months. So no real harm done uh, getting back to where you were and recapturing them. So again, this is another, another study that confirms tapering can be successful, but cessation is asking for a flare and uh, it speaks to whether your glass is half full or glass is half empty, you can stretch it to second monthly and 68% of patients will stay in good shape. But if you want to maintain them, 84% if you continue monthly and you don't taper. So they're your choices. Don't stop, taper if you want to by increasing the treatment duration rather than stopping medication altogether. And that's the take home message. Thanks very much. Hi, this is Eric Dine at ACR Convergence Day 2. I'm here with Dr. Quillen Connolly. Hi, Dr. How are you Dine. Doing? Um, so Dr. Connolly is, is one of our experts from Johns Hopkins who has done a lot of research into the COVID vaccines and, and rheumatic patients. What, what have you learned about or, or wanted to share today? Yeah, so we have been involved in a national observational cohort study since January of 2021. Um, evaluating safety, immunogenicity, and efficacy of the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines in patients with rheumatic diseases. Um, along the way, we've made a number of um, kind of discoveries um, that have also been uh, corroborated by other groups. Um, one of which was that patients on mycophenolate had very much an attenuated response to two-dose vaccination. That was a, a big cause of concern for us because a lot of our sickest patients, uh, such as patients with lupus nephritis, interstitial lung disease, um, vasculitis, um, are often prescribed this medication. 
and we wanted to delve more into uh, possible strategies to optimize um, the vaccine response in these patients so that we could optimize or help optimize protection uh, from SARS-CoV-2 infection. Uh, we initially actually published um, a letter in Annals of Rheumatic Diseases showing that patients who withheld mycophenolate in the peri-vaccination period um, did have a better immune response after um, two-dose vaccination. And from that, we wanted to see, you know, what is the optimal duration of response uh, within the limitations of an observational cohort study. Um, so in our cohort, we had 220 patients who were prescribed mycophenolate. Um, a significant proportion, portion of them actually continued uh, mycophenolate throughout the pre-vaccination period. However, uh, there was about 40 or so patients who did hold therapy, but half of them held for less than 10 days, the other half held for greater than 10 days. And we found that amongst those who withheld therapy for 10 days or more, um, there was a, a better humoral response. Um, thankfully, there was no uptick in you know, flares amongst those patients. Um, so you know, that, that's what was presented this morning by Sarah Frey, who's a fantastic medical student at Johns Hopkins. Um, and you know, really interesting findings that hopefully will be um, clarified further you know, in a more controlled clinical trial setting. And tell me about your other abstract um, that I believe you're doing tomorrow on uh, third dose vaccination? Yes. So, you know, the other kind of uh, wing of this project is to evaluate efficacy um, of the vaccines in our patients. Um, and, you know, the, the surrogate for efficacy is rate of breakthrough infection. Uh, what I'm presenting tomorrow is rate of breakthrough infections during the Omicron era among patients with autoimmune diseases. You know, it's been well uh, documented at this point that our patients are at increased risk of COVID-19 um, because of their baseline immune dysregulation and use of immunosuppressive therapies, um, and that unfortunately our patients are at increased risk of poor outcomes if they do get COVID-19. But that's all in the pre-Omicron era. Um, what we found in over 1,200 patients with um, rheumatic diseases and other autoimmune diseases, that the rate of breakthrough during the Omicron era was about 20%. Uh, which is a little bit high, although not significantly different to the general population given the greater transmissibility of the Omicron variant. Um, but what we found was, although the rate of infection was relatively high, um, infections were typically quite mild, um, and only 4% of patients who were treated for their infection um, had or ended up in the hospital, but there was no, uh, nobody who reported um, you know, admission to the intensive care unit, um, and nobody reported needing, you know, intubation or mechanical uh, ventilation. We also wanted to establish, you know, were there factors that were protective against breakthrough infection? And what we found was that amongst um, the population that we studied, that those who had received three-dose vaccination had a much lower risk of breakthrough infection when compared to those who had received two-dose vaccination. So I think this is really important, um, particularly now with the newer variant or the newer you know, a variant-specific booster is available for our patients, and we hope that this data will, you know, help inform decision-making uh, for, for patients who may still be a little vaccine-hesitant. I'm sure there will always be new studies of, of how that new vaccine will hold up in our patients. Yeah, and, you know, the goal is always to, you know, afford as much protection as we possibly can. Um, I think vaccination is clearly the mainstay of uh, infection prevention. Um, luckily now we have a number of other you know, interventions that can help optimize protection like pre-exposure prophylaxis, etc. Um, but it is you know, very reassuring that the additional dose does um, enhance uh, protection in our patients.
definitely very useful information you could bring to the bedside and talk to your patients with. Yeah, and that's always the goal. And yeah. hopefully we can, uh, you know, enhance outcomes in some way. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much. Check out more on Room Now.